Welcome back to Mintz Levin's From the Edge. I am Jeremy Glazer, the co-chair of the Mintz Levin Venture Capital and Emerging Company Practice. Mintz Levin is a nationally leading law firm focused on helping emerging growth companies achieve success. Check us out at mintzedge.com. So I am so pleased today to welcome Ken Cohen. Ken Cohen is an independent advisor to entrepreneurs, companies, and investors, primarily in the life sciences sector. He's also an experienced corporate director and board chairman. Ken was previously the co-founder, president, and CEO of Samaxon Pharmaceuticals, a specialty pharmaceutical company that he actually took public. Uh, he was president and CEO of Symbiotics Corporation, a veterinary diagnostics company, and was executive vice president and COO for Kanji, a gene therapy company, until its acquisition by Shearing Plow in 1996. Ken also held numerous positions during 10 years at Eli Lilly, including director of business planning for medical instrument systems, which became Guidant, and very interestingly, managed the launch of Prozac, one of the most successful drugs of all time. Well, thank you, Ken, for joining us. Really excited to have you here. Thanks for inviting me, Jeremy. Our pleasure. So on today's podcast, Ken's going to discuss how he built and funded his prior companies, both in the private and public markets, and lessons learned along the way. So Ken, let's start by, you know, start at the beginning. You know, why did you elect to leave that nice cushy job at Eli Lilly, Big Pharma, and become an entrepreneur? I still ask myself that every day. And my mother, my whole life, asked, why did you ever leave such a comfortable situation in a big company with a bright future? It, it's a funny thing. In American culture and media, we have this thing about entrepreneurship. The media often talks about entrepreneurs like they're some kind of heroes on some higher moral existence. And it's all kind of ridiculous. The economy and life would not exist as we know it without big companies who do a lot of good stuff. I was really happy in a big company. I liked my work, I had a great future, good income, and I really felt like I was making a contribution. But I get antsy from time to time. I'd been with Eli Lilly 10 years, and while I knew things were fine, a part of me said, what would happen if I tried to be one of those guys that gets involved in a startup. And what ultimately prompted it was an experience where I was representing Eli Lilly in negotiations to acquire a company. And I was looking at the guys on the other side of the table thinking, they're not older than me, they're not smarter than me, they're not working any harder than I am, and they're in control of their own destiny and they're about to get really rich. And I have to fly back to Indianapolis for permission every time they ask for another dollar and fifty cents a share for their company. And I thought, I've just got to try it. I need something my own. Little did I know that they were no more in control of their destiny than I was of mine. It just looked that way. So this, but is, I had the classic, the, so this is the classic, the grass is always greener. So, so was the grass greener? Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Uh, and you know the second half of the expression, the grass is greener because the you-know-what is piled higher and deeper. <laughs> I found that it suited me well. And I really learned that because my very first startup, where I joined as a VP, didn't work out very well. The company was a struggle. And I found myself looking to make a change after less than two years. 
But my instinct was not to return to the relative comfort of a big company job again. My instinct was, well, I'm just going to find a better startup and see if I can do better the next time around. But there's nothing morally superior about entrepreneurship. <laughs> uh, big companies do a lot of worthwhile things, and there's a lot of rewarding work there. And you've got to know yourself. There's not some right answer here. You've got to look inside and talk to the people you care about, who you trust to give you advice, and do what works for you. And remember that nothing is permanent. Yes, yes. Well, one of, the, one of the biggest challenges, once you've made that decision to become an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges that all entrepreneurs face is funding. And you know, you've raised money for both public companies and private companies. So maybe tell us a little bit about what it was like raising both in the private markets and then you, know, you took a company public through an IPO. I think that would be very interesting to hear about that experience as well. Yeah, I've actually been through two public offerings, one as a, as a senior VP and one as a founding CEO. Raising money is really, really hard. And one of the hardest things I think for new entrepreneurs to grasp is that it isn't simply about the quality of your idea or your business plan. It's personal. It's very personal. The top question, or one of the top two or three questions most prospective investors ask, is not what's your idea and what's your business plan. It's, who are you and whose deal is this anyway? It is personal. And until you build a certain level of relationship and trust, why should they trust you to take their money and earn a return on that investment? And while I didn't fully understand that, I think instinctively I must have on some level known that because my first startup was not my company where I was this founder or the CEO. My first startup, I got hired as a VP in a company that already had some venture funding, and I had to play a very significant role in raising the next round of venture funding. So the credibility, I had some from my big company job, but I had none as an entrepreneur or a fundraiser. I was able to begin to absorb some of the credibility of the first round investors mm -hmm. and our CEO, who was the main reason I took that job. I thought this is going to be a great mentor and a great person to work with. Now through subsequent rounds and eventually doing it as CEO and running a public company and raising private venture, all the different things I've done, one constant is that it remains very personal. You've got to have introductions. The surest way to get your business plan ignored by a professional investor is to send it in over the transom without a personal referral. It's not that it's simply who you know. They won't invest just because they know you. But you need a reference and the credibility that comes with it to be heard, to get an audience. Sure. So this is interesting. Um, you know, you raised a, a lot of money in the private uh, markets, and then you took two companies public. Why, particularly Samaxim, because that was one that you were the CEO and founder of, why did you choose to take it public? And talk about the, the pluses and minuses of the process of going public and then what it was like to be a public company. I've known so many entrepreneurs and people make certain assumptions about going public that 
they should question before they do it. The number one question, as you just asked, why do you want to go public? I've known people who actually want to do it for the prestige or as some kind of rite of passage. My career won't be complete until I've done an IPO. Those are admirable, but I really don't recommend it. The reason to go public, particularly in a field like mine, the life sciences, where you need gobs and gobs of capital to get anywhere, the number one reason to do it is access to capital. Not just the money you raise by selling shares of stock, but the things that become available to you once you have publicly listed stock as currency, whether it's making acquisitions, whether it's attracting the employees you need with equity options. That's the, to me, the one and only truly good reason to go public is the access to capital and the things that come with that. And so it's interesting because in today's market, not so much in the life sciences world, but we see in the technology world, so many companies staying private for a long, long time and not going public as early as they did. And yet, interestingly, in the tech sector, there seems to be a lot of access to capital, which is what you were talking about. Even for private companies, they don't have to go public. But we don't seem to see that as much in the life sciences and biotech space. These companies seem to still go public, you know, relatively early, right? Pre-revenue, still with, with products, you know, um, waiting for approval. It's interesting. Why, why do you think that's so different? Biotech and life sciences are so different than tech, primarily because of the timelines to becoming a commercial business. Tech companies may take a long time to get profitable, but they get to big revenue numbers fairly quickly if they're good companies. Biotech, you are easily looking at a decade before realistic commercial revenue, maybe longer. Nobody can sit and wait and keep tapping the private markets repeatedly when you don't know if you're ever going to be a business. So despite the trends in tech, in the life sciences world, particularly drug development and biotech, if you're not acquired, going public is inevitable. Samaxa was an interesting case because besides having a good idea and a good experience management team and the right early investors, we raised a lot of money privately. We raised $100 million in three rounds of venture capital. And we had more than $50 million in the bank when we decided to go public. And the reason was, go get it when you don't need it. Get public, strengthen your balance sheet, get yourselves in a position where you can withstand a long winter if that's what's coming. What year did you take Smacks in public? We took Smacks in public at the end of 2005 and we'd only started the company in 2003. We were barely two and a half years old when we took it out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you had a big pool of capital when the world sort of came tumbling down in 2008? By 2008, I was actually gone. Uh, I spent five years there. Remember that antsiness thing I mentioned? <laughs> Done everything I could do with the company. It was a logical time for a transition. The company, by the time the world came crashing down in 2008, had been through so many iterations that it had setbacks at FDA, it had had some good things happen, it ultimately got its drug approved while the world was bouncing off the bottom of the financial crisis and was able to make its comeback. 
but the capital got us all the way through the clinical program and all the way through our submission to the FDA. So, so in retrospect, right decision to take, to take the company public? Absolutely. I don't know that we could have continued tapping the private venture markets. We had raised $100 million in private venture money. We picked up another 50 or 60 in the IPO, and that carried us a pretty long time. So uh, our podcast is really directed towards early-stage entrepreneurs, people starting companies. You've obviously started a number of companies. You've had success in raising money and taking your company public. You've also been an advisor and consultant to a large number of startup companies. So if I were a, a young person looking to start a life sciences company, what would you tell me? Don't do it. It's not too late to turn back. Well, there's a couple things that I always start with. I do. When I sit down with a first-time entrepreneur, I always ask, are you sure you really want to do this? Have you thought about it? Because it's thrilling, it's fun, it's challenging, but there are a lot of dark days. If I had to pick the single biggest difference between life in a giant corporation and life in a startup venture, the highs are higher and the lows are lower. Because no matter how bad things get in a big company, most people never go home at night thinking, if I don't find $10 million in the next 30 days, then all these people depending on me are going to be out of a job and my investors are going to write it off and my career is going to be destroyed and I don't know what's next. You have to be able to live with that fear and set it aside and go about your business. The next thing I always look at, okay, you're committed to do this. Let's talk about the people you are going to surround yourself with. If you are young, and a first-timer, the strength of your idea will not be enough. Get yourself some quality mentors. Put together a proper board of directors. Not so much at this stage for complete and sophisticated corporate governance, but to know you've got access to a committed group of experienced people who are going to help guide you. And going back to the financing challenge of how personal it is, you need people that give you credibility by association. So, are you sure you're ready for the sacrifices? And then get yourself some really good people, and then get started, see what happens. Okay, so now I've started, right? I've, I, I heard you tell me, you know, it's not too late to turn it back, but I decided I'm going for it anyway. So now I need to raise money. How do I raise money at that early stage when I'm like you say, just an idea, maybe I've built that nice advisory board of mentors and board of directors. Where do I go? What do I do? I think you have to select a short list of targets. At the very beginning, you are probably not ready for a proper institutional round of financing. A venture capitalist or a private equity fund is going to want to see more than what you have, which means you probably have to get your money from individuals. Please, please be cautious about friends and family. Now, if you have a wealthy family and you only need fifty dollars or $100,000 to get off the ground, and you're lucky enough that your mom or your dad or your aunt and uncle can do that, maybe it's okay. But generally speaking, I would say, please be careful about friends and family. And the reason is 
the money you raise at the beginning is nowhere close to what you're going to need. And for the very first investors, there's two problems to beware of. One is that you fail. And if you fail, they lose their money. The other is if you succeed. And if you succeed, you will attract more money from more professional sources who will very quickly teach your early investors if they don't put up more money, they're going to be wiped out by the terms of the new financings. What all that means to me is stick with professional investors. Even if it's a first round, don't look to your friends and family who don't do this all the time. Look for experienced angels who understand what they're getting themselves into. Your board and mentors will probably know where to find some of these people. Maybe one or more of your mentors is also an angel investor. There are some organized angel groups like the Tech Coast Angels in Southern California. Even though they are not professional funds, they are experienced investors who know that they can lose, who know that their first money is not the last money they're going to have to put up. Because your venture can fail and you'll recover. We've all recovered from disappointing ventures. But if you lose your friends and family's money that they didn't have to lose, or worse, if you mortgaged your house and you lose your house, you may never get your life back on track. Yes. So, so let's assume I've taken your advice, I've raised some angel money. And kind of thinking back about the way you got introduced to the venture capital funds that funded your companies, how do I find these venture capital funds? How did you go about finding them? How did you get the introductions? How did you get them to come and to be investors in your company? It's pretty much entirely personal referrals. Your board knows people. Your investors know people. They know people who know people. You always want to go back to a phone call, an email, a written introduction to somebody. You do not want to walk into a venture fund cold calling. So you, so you didn't take an exec summary and blast it out to, you know, 20, 30 life science VCs? No. I did have a business plan. Now, when I started doing this, you used to write a business plan that was 100 pages long. Nobody does that anymore. Now you have a PowerPoint deck that's no more than 20 slides. But the process always begins, for me, with a phone call. Hi, Jeremy. My name's Ken Cohen. Joe Blow from XYZ told me to give you a call. Ideally, it's a phone call. If you absolutely can't get someone on the phone, try an email, but don't expect much. There is still something about this old-fashioned analog technology of human voices that works better than anything else. So it begins with a phone call, then there's a follow-up where you send no longer a long business plan, but a short summary. And then you've got to try and get yourself a live appointment. Now there are some other things I'd say don't do. Never pitch a venture capitalist in an elevator. <laughs> you will train people to wait for the next elevator car when they see you. You gotta remember, People are human. They have lives. They don't want to be accosted and attacked with pitches everywhere they go. If you do run into people in a social setting, don't pitch your deal. 
do normal social stuff. Let them get to know you as a person and think, this is a nice person I wouldn't mind spending more time with. Maybe I would like to learn about his business venture. Very good, very good. Well, we're about to wrap up, but before we, before we go, I want to just ask you about what you're doing currently as a, as a board member, as an advisor. Tell us about what's happening right now with your, with your current occupation. As is typical for me, I currently have significant, committed, long-term relationships with three companies, and then I've always got another one or two or three possibilities kind of in the incubator. I am on uh, one board of a private company that sells specialized contact lenses, mostly in China, for reasons we don't have time to get into. But that's a company I've had an on and off relationship with for nearly 20 years. I've been a consultant, I've been an unpaid advisor, I've been fired as a consultant, (laughs) I've been a secret conspirator in a plot for the management to oust the founder and the board (laughs) and change it all over, which is how I ended up currently a director. And it's a very interesting company as a great example that management matters. The company struggled for years, unable to raise financing, and somehow staying alive by surviving on two or three million dollars worth of revenue. In the three years since the secret management coup, which I helped with, and I became a director, the company's grown from five million to 20 million in revenues. It's gone from losses to profits. And instead of struggling for capital, last year we fought off five competing term sheets and ended up with a $15 million strategic investment. So we're in very good shape and we hope that's going to continue. Management does matter. Then I have a small private company which is doing a drug development project in three years and only, only in quotes, 11 or $12 million dollars we took a molecule out of an experimental research laboratory and turned it into a clinical drug candidate. It is now in a phase one trial in prostate cancer patients. We'll see what happens as we learn. That's a very unusual and lucky situation. We are funded by a single individual who's a foreign national, who's unimaginably wealthy, who has a personal connection to the founders and the disease condition that we're interested in treating, which brings up one more point for your listeners. Luck matters too. People didn't do it all by skill. Even if it is skill, your skill has to match up with the market environment and the technology has to work all in the right time frame. Luck is very important here. And then lastly, I'm involved with a very small but public biotech company looking at antibodies in cancer, particularly pancreatic cancer, promising technology, financially very challenging. It's a company that went public via reverse merger and has always struggled with the challenge of being public, but tiny, tiny, tiny. So I wish we had more time to explore that and maybe we'll have you back to talk a little bit about reverse mergers and the difficulties of financing them because I think that's a very interesting topic. But I think we have to wrap up. So I just want to thank our guest, Ken Cohen, for joining us. This was really, really interesting, very valuable. Uh, Your experience, your insights, I think all the entrepreneurs are going to just benefit greatly from you sharing this with us. So thank you. 
for taking the time to do this. My pleasure, and I'm happy to come back. Wonderful. I am Jeremy Glazer of Mince Levin, and thank you for listening to this edition of From the Edge.